everyone. Welcome back to Name Drop San Diego. I'm your host, Abby Hamblin, along with Christy Totten. We've got a literal rock star guest for you today. Ilan Rubin is the drummer for Nine Inch Nails and Angels and Airwaves, and he also has a solo project called The New Regime, where he plays every single instrument and sings. Here's the title track from his latest album, Heart, Mind, Body, and Soul. So when through the drama sin, you know we cannot make any exceptions. Roll over you on the way to the top of the star. Can't hear your petty objections. Oh, 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 oh. Ilan was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year at age 32, making him the youngest person ever to be inducted. That makes sense when you hear that he's been touring since he was a little kid growing up in Bonita, playing the Warp Tour at age 9, and Woodstock Festival in 1999 at just 11 years old. We talked to Ilan about a ton of things, including aliens and a couple of unexpected hobbies. Here's our interview. All right. Well, let's just get started. So you've had a really big year, sort of despite the pandemic. I saw on Instagram that you got married. You're the youngest person ever to be inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you how do you feel? How's it going? I feel a little guilty saying that 2020 has been a pretty decent year for me. Now, that is, you know, most importantly, I've been healthy and all of that good stuff. My family my new wife, everyone's been healthy. So that's, that's most important. But aside from all of that, it's been a good year. I mean, the, the rock and roll hall of fame thing was pretty unexpected. I knew before the pandemic that nine inch nails was getting inducted, but I honestly, and this is not coming from some overt modesty or anything, but I really wasn't expecting to be inducted personally. I mean, when nine inch nails started, I was a year old if that so and it's obviously Trent's baby and his um, it's his you know so I wasn't expecting it but a few weeks before the actual ceremony or the whatever it it wasn't really a ceremony but the HBO documentary induction show whatever you want to call it a few weeks before that I got a call from Trent congratulating me that I myself as well as the immediate band and a couple of guys who were there at um, very important stages in the, in the career were being inducted as well. So I was thrilled to find that out. It really was a phenomenal silver lining in the year and just something I'll be proud of forever. It's one of those things that I grew up either watching on TV every year or hearing about my heroes who had been inducted when they were eligible. So. I always wanted to do it. I just didn't think I'd do it at 32. So I was really happy about that. I mean, the whole youngest thing just happens to be a matter of math that worked out. I mean, I don't really know what to say about that. It sounds cooler than it is probably, but I'm still proud of it. And yes, yeah, you said, I got married. I actually, I actually got engaged and married during this whole thing. All right. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Nice. So, yeah, it has been a rough year, and we do want to get to talking about your new music. Mm-hmm. But we read that you were on tour kind of right as everything started shutting down and your new music was coming out. But what have you done instead this year? You know, staying home, um, has it been kind of a writing time for you? Has it been a break, a vacation? Like, what have you been doing instead? Uh, it definitely hasn't been a break. And I say that just because that's not really my personality. I always have to be working on something or learning something. And I was touring literally up until the nationwide lockdown. So the new regime, which is for those who don't know, it's my solo endeavor. I write, play and sing everything and have a band live. Mm -hmm. And we were on tour with Silverstone Pickups at the time. And as things appeared to be getting more serious on the news and online, we were kind of wondering whether we were going to be able to complete the tour, because it was a pretty short tour anyway. I think it was under three weeks. But everything was going great. Crowd response was fantastic, and we felt like it was really well well spent time doing it. And 
then we heard from the tour manager, you know, we'll probably be able to sneak in a couple more shows and then we'll have to lock it down and go home. It's like, well, what can you do? This is happening to everybody. The next morning, we pull up to the venue and realize that none of the trailers were unloaded. And I'm like, oh, this is not good. So I walked into the venue and show was canceled, tour was canceled, and we literally had to just turn around and drive from Knoxville, Tennessee, straight to San Diego. And that was that. You know, it was really unfortunate. But, you know, as, as negative as I am on the day-to-day, I was thinking, what can you do about this? Everyone's going through it. It's unprecedented, and there's no sense being upset about it or bitching about it. So just got to pick up and go and move on. So since I had all this newfound time on my hands and no real commitments because as you mentioned my album had come out just before actually during that tour so it came out at the worst time ever tour was canceled not able to do anything and aside from that it was meant to be a very busy year for me between Nine Inch Nails touring and Angels and Airwaves touring I mean it was going to be a very very busy year all of that was swept under the rug in the snap of a finger but I thought, okay, I have all this time on my hands, and what can I do to really make the best use of it? So I had always wanted to dive into orchestration and different types of scoring, since it had always been a fascination of mine, but something I couldn't really devote the appropriate time to get into. So I kind of always pushed it off, and I always thought I'd be good at it, but you have to really put in the time and improve yourself. So that's what I've been doing really for the last seven or eight months. I always complain about, well, at least internally, complain about not having enough time to read and just do other things that I enjoy. So honestly, within the first couple of months of this lockdown, I was just destroying book after book. I read about 25 or 26 books. Nice. And then I was like, you know what? I should probably be a little more productive in things that could help my career when <laughs> that is a thing again. So I've just been writing a lot of music. Angels and Airwaves has been doing music. I've been learning a lot about music and um, just really try to be as productive as possible. What was uh, what were some of your favorite books you read during the beginning of lockdown? Uh, Candide was a good one. I'd never read that. Um, I, you know, I honestly went through a lot of classics that you'd probably be disappointed to find out I just read in my <laughs> 31st or 32nd year. Yeah, I never read any. I, I always enjoyed reading, but I never wanted to read what was a part of the curriculum. So I read like 1984. I'm reading 1984 right now. Oh, that's good. So don't be ashamed. I've never read it either. No, it's great. But I'm like, isn't it a weird not... time to be reading it? It's really weird. You know, what's really funny is the first book I read was a book about the Black Death. And that might be oh. dark on my part, but I'm like, you know what? It seems like a good time to read this. <laughs> Matt, and yeah. um, and um, so I was just going back and forth between history and classics and kind of just toggling between the two. Read a book about the Dead Sea Scrolls, which I've always found interesting. I read Mice and Men, oh, quite, quite a few, Three Musketeers, just all wow. over the show. You really yeah. did read a lot. I did. And I'm, I'm forgetting a lot out of them, but I was just like, got to read more, got to read more, got to read more. And I got to a point where I was like, I should do something else with my time. Well, something I've been thinking through this whole pandemic is like how much I can't wait to see live music. I imagine you mm -hmm. on the other, I, I mean, I'm sure you feel that way too, but I'm sure you can't wait to play live music. And, you know, we've been hearing about how like after the, the 1918 pandemic, there was like the roaring 20s. Do you have ideas about what the music industry is going to look like after we come through this? I have zero idea, but I hope that you're right. Now, personally, I can't wait to play again. Um, as far as seeing shows... Ah, you know, I um, pretty much everybody who I would die to go see is no longer playing, to be honest with you. My head's kind of in different times in terms of what I'd love to see. But um, I do hope, this is going to sound very hypocritical given what I just said, but I do hope that people have a greater appreciation for going to shows when they start back up again. So, I know I will. Yeah, so I, I'm really looking forward to playing but, you know, I never really saw the Roaring Twenties as it being 
somewhat affected by that pandemic. But I'll tell you something that I do find a little comforting looking back to that time is that, I mean, if we look at the Spanish flu, for example, I don't think any of us even heard those words uttered until COVID-19. In which case, I hope it follows the same pattern where once this is behind us, it's not even something that will be referred to, I was about to say, until the next pandemic, but hopefully that doesn't happen. <laughs> or hopefully it's another 100 years down the line. I hope you're right. But people have a good way of, of getting past things and compartmentalizing them and moving on with life. So that's what I'm looking forward to. So you have toured a lot. Um, I don't know. Do you, do you know the number of tours you've been on? Could you even? I couldn't count, to be honest <laughs> with you. I mean, I started, the reason why I had to do homeschooling, as I mentioned earlier, was because I was touring too much. So at that point, I was 14. And uh, I've been touring pretty consistently since 14 years old. What would you say, even though you can't remember the number or anything like that, can you remember like the most memorable places you've played or some of the best shows or moments that you've had on the road? Yeah, I mean, things always stand out to me. For example, a first tour of, of North America. I recall that around that age of 14, but then fast forward a couple years later, my first international show was in Japan. So, or my first international tour. So I remember that first visit to Japan. I'm happy to say I've probably been seven or eight times after that, and it's one of my favorite places to go. But I always kind of remember those, those first milestones or things that I'd always wanted to do and finally accomplishing them. So my first tour of the UK, first tour of Europe, I remember and um, getting to play venues that I always heard about, kind of looking up to my, my rock heroes. When the first, I've only played, uh, I've played Earl's Court once in London, but I always knew of Earl's Court because Led Zeppelin played there in 75 and Queen played there in 77. Royal Albert Hall is one that I played twice in one year a couple of years back, and I had always wanted to play there because the Beatles played there, Led Zeppelin played there. So just kind of really being in touch with the history of the things that interest me. I've been really fortunate to be able to play those places or a lot of those places and feel like, well, I've, I've played here. So those things stick out to me. And if I find anything a little more detailed or less vague, I will I'll blurt it out <laughs> to you. But whenever I get a question about touring, I just get this like, like spinning wheel on the computer where I'm like, wait a second, there are a lot of them I don't recall. But um, not for any sort of debaucherous reasons, it's just been a long time and a lot of the same, really. So things kind of become a blur. I mean, there have been times where, this happens every single tour actually, where a venue will come up and I go, yeah, I don't think I've ever played there. And then I walk in there, I'm like, no, I've been here at least five times. But I don't remember the name or it takes something to kind of spark my memory but yeah i am interested in the debaucherous things that happen on tour but we're a family podcast so we'll i'm the most that. i'm the most boring individual of all time i mean given what i've been up to during my quarantine i'm sure you already figured that out but i'm as i'm as lame as they come that's so funny. I, I highly doubt that. But so you mentioned Led Zeppelin. I know that's uh, one of your favorite bands, if not your favorite band. And you also said there's there aren't really many bands who are living or still together that you'd want to see. But like, what are those, you know, bands that you wish you could have seen? Well, that is something that sticks out to me. In fact, kind of full circle to the last question. I was 2007 was a crazy year for me in the sense that I saw two bands that I never thought I would ever see. One being... Led Zeppelin or Led Zeppelin with Jason Bonham on drums. I never thought I would ever see Led Zeppelin ever. I saw a Page and Plant tour when it came to San Diego in 1998. So I was nine or 10 years old, wow. but that's the closest I ever thought I would get. So when I saw them that year, it was a mind boggling experience for me because I knew I would enjoy it, but it hit me with a different kind of weight because I've been obsessed with them since I was eight years old. So for me, I had this weird epiphany where that was my equivalent of, say, an eight-year-old seeing their superheroes all hanging out 
together except my superheroes were at that point english guys in their late 60s or 70s <laughs> but i was like this would this is what an eight-year-old would feel like if he saw superman spider-man and batman hanging out that's what it felt like for me and it's it's the only time this may sound weird but it's the only time i've actually been choked up by something musical i mean i love music but it doesn't hit me in that sense where something will make me cry or or it'll depress me i mean i can hear the darkest music uh, a requiem or a funeral march and the music actually excites me because i'm like oh this is so beautifully put together music doesn't always kind of tug in my my heartstrings but that moment made me choke up and i was i was taken aback by that that year i also saw one of my other favorites the police when they did their reunion tour so 2007 sticks out to me as a year i saw two bands that i never ever thought i would see and the reason why i said this goes full circle is i've been fortunate enough to play the o2 arena twice in my day and that's where that led zeppelin show was so it's been awesome to be a performer there be a spectator there and walk down the like the backstage halls and see a giant photo of them before they went on stage and it's like wow i've, I've been on that stage so it's it's a very cool feeling for me so from the largest stages to the tiniest stages we do want to ask you there's a lot out there about your young days being so successful so early as a young musician. But if you guys can this... erase all that stuff, go for it. <laughs> no way. <It's> fine. <laughs> Not no. happening. Not on my watch. Well, we just wanted to see to what extent San Diego actually played a role in your early days. Like, did you actually tour around San Diego? Are there any venues here that you can remember playing at as getting your start? Or did you really just kind of take off on tour and, you know, there were no like backyard shows in San Diego to speak of? No, there were definitely plenty of those because the first band I was ever in was my older brother's high school band. So as high that school... Bonita Vista High? Pretty much. So my first show ever was actually a battle of battle of the bands in the gym at Bonita Vista. There we go. That's but, great trivia right there. But then there were... I, I just... I don't know which venues are still around. I mean, there was a venue called The Scene, Soma, different iterations of Soma because I know they kind of closed down for a while. Um, Canes. I I know the building is still there. I don't know what it's called now, though, but it was uh, like Belmont Park. Is it still called Canes? Do you guys know? I just yeah. moved here recently. I'm not sure. Oh. Yeah, it is, well, right? Well, then don't worry about that. Let's back check <laughs> this live. I think it is. Uh, Canes Ballroom, right? Oh, there you go. Yeah, I think so. Um, some venues that I'm picturing, but I don't recall the name. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, definitely some backyard parties and lame things like that. I mean, I, I played my first kegger when I was probably about nine. <laughs> Is that also when you drank your first beer? No, I, I'm a good kid, you know, no trouble there. <laughs> I did um, read that one of your early shows, none of your friends could go to because, or one of your San Diego shows, none of your friends could go to because they weren't 21. Uh, most of them. One of your big ones. Yeah, yeah most of them. It was really funny. And you know, you mentioned, or you asked if that was the first time I had a beer. My parents were so supportive of me playing music. I mean, especially in those formative years, they were everywhere with me, but they also ingrained into me, like, you're not going to drink, you're not going to do drugs, you're not going to do anything because we're letting you do this and you should do it, but don't be stupid. So I just had all of that drilled into my brain. I mean, the first time I actually had proper drinks was on my 18th birthday in London and um, family came out and surprised me for that and of course that's legal drinking age over there so that was true, my true taking and yeah I mean to this day haven't done any drugs or anything not passing judgment on those who do but I just I had it really beaten to my brain as a young kid it's amazing yeah, well, it sounds like a good deal. That's also surprising. I mean, I don't want to press you on this, but you know, when you, you think of like rock rock bands on tour, you know, we talked to, we we mentioned debauchery earlier. I think that you assume uh, a lot of that stuff goes on. And it's probably safe to assume in most scenarios, but um, I don't think most people get into, shall we call it, a line of work at 
nine years old with the guidance of parents. It's usually something you either, or a lot of people get into either out of excitement, rebelliousness, whatever it may be. And it's certainly not sort of fostered and encouraged by parents, but I got a young start. So how long did you and your brother's band kind of last before you got into um, other acts that were more road focused? Um, uh, a few years. I mean, it's, it's a bit of a blur at this point, but that band disintegrated because, um, so both of my brothers were actually in that band, but my oldest brother and I then joined another band and that was my first experience of doing a lot of touring, being on a major label, being dropped from a major label, not even a year later. And that just put a lot of things in perspective for me. But I'm the kind of person who never focuses on the journey. And I'm always looking at what I'm trying to head towards. But in hindsight, I'm able to see a pretty linear straight line between this band led to a bigger one, led to a bigger one. And that's what it looks like in hindsight. But in the moment, there's a ton of anxiety in figuring out what I'm going to do and what's the best thing to do, smartest choices, really trying to hedge bets and just try to be as smart as possible. But yeah, one thing always led to another when I, when I look back. So you joined um, Nine Inch Nails when you were 20 years old. Like you said, they have been around as long as you've been around as a human. Uh, was yeah. that intimidating, you know, being so young and playing with these rock stars and like well-known touring musicians? Uh, what was that like? Um, once again, I'm not being modest when I say this or immodest, depending on the perspective. By the time I had that opportunity, I was excited about it. I was ready for it. And nothing was going to keep me away from it. So I went into auditions thinking, I've got this, I'm going to handle it. And then from the second I was invited into the band, everything was just um, perfect for me as an individual. I mean, Nine Inch Nails is by far the most professional, precise, on-point band I've ever played with. And that was after coming out of one of the most unprofessional and disorganized things that I'd been a part of. So it was just a, a perfect place for me, a perfect fit. And it, it, it presented itself at the perfect time for many reasons. So there wasn't intimidation. I was just like, okay, I got to do this and I'm going to do it. What I will say though, is once I got it, I did have this moment of, this might be too good to be true. So who knows? something bad's going to happen. But um, that's just me always fearing the worst. But it's been a great time. It's, I'm, it's shocking that it's been almost 12 years now or whatever it is, but um, it's been a great time. Well, we definitely also want to ask you about Angels and Airwaves, especially because that's more or less a local band, right? Yeah. Um, more, more, not less. I mean, Tom's so, been in San Diego longer than I have. Yeah, Tom, yeah. So we want to ask you, you know, how did that transition to, did you know those guys from San Diego or did you kind of just know of them through the music industry? No, well, funny enough, the only guy, well, I'm taking this a step back pre-Angels and Airwaves, the only guy from the Blink world that I knew was Travis because I took lessons from him when I was a kid. Uh, probably 11, 12 years old. But funny enough, he's not from San Diego. So that worked uh, out in, a, in an odd way. And then all these years later, I suppose I had mutual friends. And when the opportunity presented itself where Angels and Airwaves needed a drummer and Tom was looking for somebody, my name would come up. Him and I were put in touch and seemed to be on the same page about a lot of things. And it just happened to come out of nowhere, to be honest with you. And I think this was about 2012. And what was interesting about that is by that point in my life, I had been, I'd already been in Nine Inch Nails for a couple of years and had done other things. But I was always used to just being the drummer in another band and then having the new regime be my solo thing where I did everything. So him and I had that initial conversation and I remember telling him, 
you know, just because I have my own solo band or whatever you want to call it, don't think that I'm anticipating joining your band and trying to, you know, take control of writing and kind of shift weight around. I'm perfectly content and used to just being the drummer. And at that point, he clarified, he's like, no, that's why I want you specifically, because I'm kind of looking for other ideas and other things to do and kind of another flavor to throw into the mix. So really, that's been my only truly collaborative experience, Angels and Airwaves. So it's been a good time. And it's odd looking back at it, because we did some touring when I first joined. We did the, the Dreamwalker album together. And there have been some EPs done, but there was a sort of six or seven year touring gap that had only come to a close at the end of last year, I want to say. Angels and Airways went on the first tour in six or seven years last year. And I was also supporting it as the new regime, so it was a great time for me playing two sets a night. But um, yeah, so quite a bit of recorded music, not as much touring. But then, of course, things get running just as the pandemic hit. So all of that was kind of halted. But uh, yeah, so that's my long-winded tangent answer to your question. Hopefully I answered it. I'm sorry. Yeah, I just feel like I need to go back for a second. Um, yeah. I feel like taking, I'm no musician, but taking drum lessons from Travis Barker sounds to me like learning to play basketball from Michael Jordan. So is he, what kind of teacher is he or what was that like? Is he you know, really, was was he, just what was that like? Yeah, like how does one arrange lessons with Travis Barker? Yeah. <laughs> so long story short, another thing that came out of nowhere, I was playing uh, a, probably the smallest stage on a warp Tour in 2000, I think. Yeah, 2000. And somebody who worked with Blank at the time saw me playing, was impressed by me, and asked either me or they very easily spotted my parents because they don't really look like the warp Tour crowd. And um, pretty much just said, I don't know if you know of Travis Barker, but I work with the band Blink-182 and he gives drum lessons. And do you think you'd be interested in that? Or do you think your son would be interested in that? And I mean, by that time, Blink was already a huge band. So, and, and the reason why I say that is because obviously Travis is, sort of reputation as a really good drummer had already been known and was certainly growing at the time. And it was all true. And a lesson was set up a couple of weeks later. And from that point forward, I mean, I couldn't tell you how many lessons I had just because Blink was already super busy and, and huge at that point And boxcar eraser which was another thing that both tom and travis were in were working on at the time so i basically have drum lessons in between tours and when he had at the time so i mean i wouldn't be surprised if it was 10 lessons give or take spread out over a couple of years but um what i really appreciate about it and what i enjoy most when I think back about it is how sort of regimented it was. I mean, Travis is definitely known as a guy who's obsessed with playing drums and practicing drums nonstop. And the entire lesson was spent reading, either reading notation at a practice pad or reading at the drum set and going through jazz books or funk books and then snare drum rudiments. And I know he was um, of a marching band nerd when he was in high school or middle school or whatever that was but he's a very he's a trained musician so the lessons were definitely great in my formative years and that's pretty much it but um it's also one of those things where i didn't have any sort of nerves about it it was just like okay this guy's really good let's learn everything i can learn from this and what i what I probably took most from it was just really the importance of reading and being able to open up a book, learn something from it and move on. What other drummers have you looked up for, looked up to, or, you know, who has been formative for you um, as a drummer? John Bonham's always been my favorite. Stuart Copeland from the police has been, I mean, those would be my two biggest influences in terms of 
how I play either when I'm playing drums by myself or how I am as a drummer in other bands. But big band or jazz drummers like Buddy Rich or Joe Morello are my two favorites. And I'm not, at this point in my life, I'm not a huge, I shouldn't say I'm not a huge jazz fan. I'm just not as educated as I should be in the, the style of music. But what was great about jazz drummers or big band drummers from the 40s and on is that they were so good at improvising and soloing that I really think they took the drums as a solo instrument to their absolute peak. And I'm not a big fan of drum solos as it is, but those guys were so good that they're mesmerizing to watch even now and I don't I don't think they've been they've been topped. So yeah, I mean those four I would say are my my favorites. Okay, I have Sorry kind of a, a left field question for you, which is because you play in a band with Tom DeLong, are you also into aliens? <laughs> Certainly not as much as he is, that's for sure. Um I find them interesting. Uh intriguing oh my god sorry One second. it's okay um you know what my lovely father is trying to get a hold of me right now so let's, let's get your dad on the pod him. let's get him on there yeah i'm oh, so uh, curious about your parents like hanging out at the warp tour i picture them uh, being you know, like a, an attorney and like a i don't know hmm sorry <laughs> not, not an attorney but um Definitely I don't know, not. wearing like non-Warp Tour outfits at the Warp Tour. Yeah, I mean, probably stuck out like a sore thumb, but I mean, it's so far. I mean, that's 20 years Do they live in San Diego still? Now. Yeah. In fact, I was just down seeing them a few days ago for Thanksgiving. Nice. So, oh yeah, they're in San Diego. Um, but sorry, repeat whatever the last question was. We were talking about aliens. Okay, yeah. so. Do you believe yeah, I do. And that has nothing to do with, with Tom in the sense that, like, he has shown me the way. But I think his research and the things that he has been able to bring to light have been amazing. I mean, the knowledge the guy has in the amount of time that he's put into all of that is incredible and worthy of nothing but respect. So I, I tip my hat to him. But I love having these conversations with him because even before our friendship, I just always thought the universe is too big for us to be the only things. There's just no way. And even if you look at it as simply as the universe is constantly expanding, so why couldn't the conditions present themselves for something exactly like Earth to happen? and have its own population, this and that. Now, I'm not saying, and, and if, even if that's the case, why couldn't there be some other planet out there that is not like Earth, that has its own living beings who are nothing like us, aliens, really? It's just, it's unfortunate when you, when you mention the word alien, you picture some little green guy or some gray guy with giant eyes, but it's just too big to not be the case. Okay, but if there are if you, aliens... If people are still... Yeah, sorry. No, go ahead. If people are still discovering things on this earth, there need to be things out there that we have no idea about. It's yeah. that simple. Yeah, that's a good point. So I was going to ask mm -hmm. you, um, you know, if there are aliens, do you think aliens make music? And the only reason I ask is there's a book called The Sparrow. And like when they first hear, when they first come into contact with aliens, it's because like they actually hear them broadcasting music. Is that something you've thought about? I haven't thought about that. What I have thought about is when NASA, whoever, sends a bunch of stuff up in a pod, like music, and I'm like, what are they going to do with this? You know, they can look at it. It's like, they don't have a the golden computer. record. They have exactly. a record player. No, man. They're... Of course. They'll figure it out. The, the aliens are analog. That's what you're saying. I get it. <laughs> I want that They're old sticker. Yeah. yeah. I really want to get Tom on our show to give us his hot takes on these monoliths that have been... Mm -hmm. Have you heard about this? These mysterious... No, do these giant things appear again somewhere? Yes. And then Where? disappeared. Uh, it was in the it was... Utah desert. Yeah. It's like oh. a, just a tall, um, I don't know, shiny metal 
monolith. I'm sure he could run down every monolith that has been on this planet and erased and brought back again and where <laughs> yeah. it may have come from and who may have done it. And He's an encyclopedia of awesome. knowledge. And it's funny because my one of my biggest interests, if not my biggest interest outside of music, is World War II. And we have a very similar fascination about it, except everybody believes the thing that I'm interested in. And there's no shortage of books and documentaries and people say, yes, this is how it happened. This is what happened. He has the same, if not greater obsession for this thing that most people either don't believe in or think he's insane for being as interested in as he is. So it's just fascinating to me. Wait, what just is to the see thing? Aliens. Oh, okay. You know, it's yeah. like, that's so his passion. And it's so easy to run into people who are like, what are you wasting your time for? That's not real. You're crazy. You're insane. No way. But the thing that fascinates me is just like black and white in books on History Channel all day long. And it's just funny to have that same kind of passion for such different things. But it's, Well, it's I think that that reflects what I read about you two in interviews, which even said you even said about your music style, you two are kind of opposites, mm -hmm. the way you make music together. And that's what is your strength. So that's funny that even your interests and your yeah. personalities kind of reflect that. I mean, he likes World War Two, but he can be like, you know, who helped so and so during World War Two, right? I'm like, oh, sense. well, <laughs> when they write like? that chapter into the official canon of World War Two and how the aliens <laughs> helped or didn't help. I mean, it sounds it's like a great crazy, podcast. Man. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Wait, what do you like about World War Two? I just think it's fascinating. I mean, if you think of a time where you have a Mussolini, a Hitler, a Stalin, a Franco, all within a couple thousand miles of each other, all fighting in either their own territory. I say Franco in his own territory because he wasn't really part of World War II. Spain, you know, they had a civil war going on. But then you look at Hitler and Stalin fighting over the same land. And all of that has affected the world since. If you're looking at the, the obviously the Berlin Wall up until that fell, communism. I mean, really, there are countries who can, I got to figure out how to phrase this properly because I don't want this, I mean, the devastation has left impacts on so many countries, especially in Eastern Europe, where, and I don't know if this would be offensive or not, so if, if you guys can look it up and either edit it out, but even if you're looking at East Germany versus West Germany, I think a lot of people would say that East Germany would perhaps parts of it be 10, 15 years behind West Germany as a result of the wall. And all of that ties back to World War II. I mean, really, I was born in San Diego as a result of World War II in a way because both sides of my family fled Europe and had to come up eventually through Central America, Mexico, before they ended up in San Diego. So I can literally draw the line from World War II happens, both my families leave Europe, end up in San Diego, and I'm born. So it just really affects almost everything if you really think about it. And I, I just fascinating. Yeah, that's amazing. Hmm. We can edit this out too, but I have a good book recommendation for you. Hit the me. other one I'm reading right now is called Last Hope Island. And okay. it's about, it's during World War II. And it's about what, Norway, Belgium, mm -hmm. it emphasizes everyone but Britain. So it's like, mm -hmm. finally, you know, in history class, you read about every, you read most, it's, it's, Britain centric, it's Germany centric. You learn about yeah. those places, but I had no idea what was going on in Norway or any of those countries. And they played major roles. And also, the way they tell the story makes Britain not look as good, and France definitely not look as good. So, Last yeah, Hope and, Island. And there you go. Well, first of all, I thought you're going to be like, we can edit this out. There's this great book. It's called Mein Kampf. You might want to. Get <laughs> but no, it's interesting because. Oh, yikes. Because. If you look at a map of Europe in 1940 and you see how much Germany conquered at that time, it's unbelievable to think that that could happen in modern times. Yeah. And I mean, you mentioned Norway. The first thing that comes to mind is they took over Norway because they wanted all of the iron ore so that they can 
do their shipments and Navy and all this fun stuff. And even that interests me. And you think of war, you think of people fighting, but a lot of people don't think about the economic aspects of what you have to do to a sustain that, make it profitable, you know, cause you think, okay, Germany has a problem with France because of world war one. Why are they invading Norway? You know, so all these pieces come to play and then you have scenarios where you have Finland and the Finns and the Russians had their own little war during world war two. And you kind of have this vague alliance of sorts because Finland hated Russia. So they are kind of allying themselves with Germany, not because they love Germany, just because they hate Russia. And then you have people who are like, oh, it looks like Germany is going to win the war. So we're going to ally with them. And then the second the tide turns, you have all these countries flipping and it's just, it's incredible. Yeah. Maybe you don't need this book. It seems like you <laughs> know a lot about all that. Too, I, but I didn't know any of it. My and the world kings war... and the different things the monarchs did. Very yeah. My world war two library is frightening. Oh. This is amazing. Okay, well, Ilan Rubin, World yeah, War sorry. II scholar. You heard it here first on Name Drop San Diego. So um, Tom's show on Aliens, History Channel at 7 o'clock, my World War II Yes, show is special. Mm, okay, we're going to be there. Um, well, yeah, let's talk more about so your music. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you you have a solo project called The New Regime. Um, sure do. What uh, were you, you know, going for with this project? I know it's been around a while, and you just uh, had a new release earlier this year, but well, why do it? The New Regime was conceived as a vehicle for complete musical freedom. I had, I saw bands that had some success on an album or great success, and then they felt like they either had to reproduce the sound of that successful album or break off and do something entirely different so that they didn't pigeonhole themselves. And that comes with um, with its rewards or trouble. And from the very beginning of the new regime, my goal was to have a debut album whose 10 songs were completely different from one another. So that whoever joined me at, that, at those very early stages would come to expect something very different from one album to the next or one track from the next. And... When I say musical freedom, I mean it in two regards. The one I just mentioned, being able to write and record whatever I felt like, and really being able to do things in the speed or the time that I felt was appropriate. As a drummer in bands, the drums are the first thing to be recorded. Do it in a day or two, then you go home and you wait five or six months for everybody else to finish their parts, in which case I felt like I was wasting away or trying to figure out when the next tour was going to be and this and that. And I really thought if I did everything myself, I wouldn't have to wait on anybody. And we've already mentioned that the drums were my first instrument, but I picked up the guitar a few years later, piano, bass, a couple years after that, and really spent my entire childhood teens getting really good at these instruments. But it wasn't until 18 that I realized what is the point of doing all this if I'm not singing? Because that's the, that's the, A, the most important thing, and B, the missing link for writing my own music from top to bottom. So I really forced myself to sing so that I could do the new regime. And as the years have gone by, singing has become one of my favorite things to do. But because it was the, the last tool in my toolbox, it's the thing that I'm always working on and I'm most critical of. But um, hopefully that answers why in terms of the new regime. Yeah. Uh, go check out Heart, Mind, Body, and Soul. Everybody listening. It's really good, I have to say. We've I'm been listening to it ahead of this, and it's been great. Thank you very much. I mean, I, I will pat myself on the back with it. It's the longest album I've, I've ever put out. And that wasn't necessarily by design. It's just... I decide to do an album when I have enough songs to do one. And by this point, I had 20 songs and I had to fit them in between tours so I can go record them. So I kind of did it in um, 10 song chunks 
I went to a studio in just outside of El Paso called Sonic Ranch. It's an awesome residential studio. You have multiple studios. You live there, eat there. There's nothing to do but eat, sleep, do music. And I would go for two week and a half chunks and knock out 10 songs at a time. And it was a great amount of work, which is the way I prefer it. And I'm super happy with the result. And as we mentioned, it came out at the absolute worst time possible in earlier mid-March. The deluxe edition just came out a couple weeks ago. So that has the remaining songs that didn't make the initial cut. Some demos, some live stuff. But uh, it's my long-winded way of saying that I'm very proud of it. And I hope people enjoy it. You're described, and throughout this interview, you've made me really aware of this, but you're really described as a student of music and somebody who's very disciplined. You said you're always trying to learn. You've picked up many, many instruments. Where do you think that drive comes from? Like, it was from a very early age that you were picking up this stuff, but what gives somebody, you always hear that about the people who are the best at what they do, that they have this obsession and this drive, and where does that come from for you? Well, first of all, thank you. Um, it, that has kind of... I think shifted at different periods in my life. At the most um, innocent, it comes from being a kid, learning an instrument, becoming completely obsessed with it, and then just wanting to get better and better and better and better. And fortunately, that transferred from one instrument to the next. And I had that same routine of picking something up, learning something on it, understanding how it works, and then thinking of what I could possibly do with it, and then just following that path until I got good at it. And the reason why I say innocent was because at that time, that was my entire world, and that's, that's all I did for the sheer joy of just doing more. Now, it's not that I don't have that same joy now. I absolutely love it, but I fall into these trains of thought where I'm like, I'm not being productive enough right now, or I need to make progress on this or that or something, or else I feel uneasy. So somehow down the line, a sort of fear of time slipping away has played a big role in my entire life but it pours into music. So, I mean, as we were saying a while ago, I started this lockdown quarantine thinking, now I'm going to read a bunch of books because I haven't had the time. And after I read a bunch of books, I thought I need to do something that's musically productive or else I'm wasting time. And for whatever reason, I, I don't see it as a bad motivator because it's a motivator nonetheless, but it has just embedded itself in my psyche in the, in the way that I think. So I'm always having to do it. And that being said, there are so many things that I still want to do that are very simple. I mean, I'm not a sight reader at the piano. I can read music and everything that I've, I've learned has come from reading sheet music, but I taught myself how to read sheet music based on knowing how to read notation for the drums. So I found myself in this weird predicament where I was far more technically capable and coordinated to learn music that was far beyond my level as a sight reader. So that's one of those things that I'm constantly feeling that I need to catch up on and I feel like it's always gnawing at me a little bit. But who actually cares? Nobody but me. But I always <laughs> feel like I have that thing gnawing in my brain that I need to do. And there are countless things like that. I have no idea why, but I mean... Perhaps a therapist could argue with me, but I see it as a good thing. But, you know, the reasons, I, I suppose, change throughout time. What are some of your other hobbies when you're not, uh, you know, making music? I have music? no life. <laughs> I do nothing. Yeah, just I have a Murphy and... bed in that closet. I sleep surrounded <laughs> by my I'm just kidding. Um, the only other hobbies, aside from my historical interests, the only thing, and I picked this up like three years ago, is I've, I've become a huge fan of tennis. I love playing it. Oh. I love watching it. And that has become the really the only thing that has nothing to do with music that I thoroughly enjoy. Why tennis? Well, a few reasons. One, I found, so my dad has 
played tennis as long as I've been alive. And I found myself kind of enjoying watching the matches because he would always just have it on when he was in the living room. He's always played. And although this is going to sound funny and I don't intend it as a joke, but pretty decent at ping pong and was when I was a kid. I mean, I'm not like an incredible ping pong player, but I can play. And obviously in the parallels are obvious. I'm like, you know what? I'm enjoying watching these matches with a few lessons. It shouldn't be that big of a stretch to hold a racket properly and get the strokes down and this and that. So my dad started teaching me and really I hate doing exercise for exercise sake, like working out. I can't stand it, but I'm like, this would be a great exercise. It's fun. I enjoy it. And it kind of just checked out a lot of boxes for me. But once I got the, the bug for it, I've, I've just loved playing. It's good stuff. It's fun. Nice. It's great See? quarantine activity as well. I'm proving to you guys exactly how boring I am, as I told you at the beginning. You didn't believe me, but now you're like... Shh. No, no, I don't think that's boring. So I, I, I'm not a fan of tennis, but a friend was um, describing it to me the other day in like a way that was super poetic. He's like, oh, it's like two athletes on an island together. And like I, whatever he said, I was like, okay, like I kind of understand the appeal, you know, and obviously it's, it's I've tried to play it before and I suck, so that I know it's hard. Right? It's awesome. And I... I don't like team sports. Not as... Um, Says the guy in the band. Well, as the guy with the solo project where he does everything by himself. <laughs> true, that's also true. But the reason why I say I don't like team sports is because I have watched countless people have their days ruined by a close game that went wrong, <laughs> went wrong because somebody on the team blew it either struck you out. You must know a lot of Chargers fans. Exactly. My my middle brother, I've watched too many Sundays get ruined for him. And honestly, it kind of became a joke where I would only get interested in a Chargers game when it was really close because I knew they would blow it. And I would oh. be amused by like <laughs> 55,000 people just all having their day ruined. And I found it hilarious. But that comes with a team. The goalie misses a goal, everybody loses. And that sucks having to depend on somebody. And what I love about tennis is that it's one-on-one. -on -one. Best player is going to win. And it really is a duel. And if you ever go to a, like a big tennis match, I was really bummed before lockdown. Indian Wells, kind of the, in the Palm Springs area, hosts one of the biggest and best tennis tournaments in the on the whole year and um, I'd gone for the last two years and I was bummed that it was canceled uh, be because of, of COVID-19 but the first time I went I was baffled to step into a stadium and watch these two guys just destroying a tennis ball going back and forth and when the point would be won by whoever the stadium would just erupt in a roar of applause and it's like two gladiators going at it but it's also super strategic you know it's not just a matter of a battle of will it's like you're watching people trying to you're watching somebody trying to bait somebody into a into a position where he can't win the point and when you really analyze it from these different levels and you see how intricate it really is it's just it's awesome it seems like you'd really like surfing. Did you ever surf? I have. I mean, does my super pale complexion <laughs> tell you that I go to the beach and would love to just get in the water and paddle out there? <laughs> well, it's very so. It's a solo mission. Um, yeah. I hate and, cold water. I hate waking yeah. up early. Okay. Same. So <laughs> if, as long as you're okay on time, we have two questions left, but we did kind of go off on a tirade in the middle That's there. Right. So, okay. Hit me. So this is kind of a long-winded question, but I'm going to try and ask it concisely. Something on your website really stood out to me, and I think it's kind of a question about how rock music has changed as a genre since, you know, you first getting into it to now. Mm -hmm. But something on your website says that you, quote, refuse to create vapid, predictable pop tunes to increase mm -hmm. your mainstream appeal. Mm -hmm. And I wondered if that is a comment on the genre today of rock music in how you've kind of seen it you've been a part of tra many transitions of it mm -hmm. nine inch nails is its own 
animal what you're doing now is its own animal but i i guess what i'm asking is how have you seen it change and what's your place in it mm. well first of all that quote may have been something that was taken out of an interview or something i did and i'm not saying that the essence of it is inaccurate by any means i just thought do i use the word vapid i don't know but um <laughs> What, what was meant by that sentiment is that in terms of what is popular and rock music or anything related to it isn't really popular and hasn't been for a few years. But what always seems to rise to the forefront of popular music, whether it be the top of the playlists, top of radio, whatever it may be, is seriously lacking any sort of inventiveness, artistry, whatever you want to call it. And I don't want to throw around terms that may seem pretentious, but that's why I use the word inventiveness, because everything is a rehashing of something else. And I know you'll have people who argue, oh, well, you only have 12 notes and this and that. How much can you really do? But it's it's kind of gross how you can see, especially in, in production trends, there's a huge song that has either a certain type of beat programming or some types of sounds, some sort of vocal manipulation. And then all the singles for the next year or so or more have all of those identical production techniques. It's lame. It's stupid. And people fall for it constantly. And what sucks about that is the people who really push that stuff to the forefront do it because they think they can sell it or they think they can get people hooked on listening to it over and over and over again. And I'm obviously aware that the music business is a business. So I don't have, you know, but if people do for the sake of something that is popular right now, and I just think it's very sort of playlist based. I mean, think about it. You're on a playlist for a week. So um, because we're called Name Drop, we wanted to ask you to name drop somebody, um, you know, from San Diego who's influenced you or impacted your life in some way. So who would that be? Mm, I have no idea. Um, let's just bring it all back to my parents. My Aww. parents are my most influential San Diegans. Yeah, I don't really know. You know, it's funny, and this is being a San Diego thing. I mean, I was born in San Diego. I was born and raised there. I lived there for the vast majority of my life. But I've always kind of been in my own little bubble of the things that interest me. So when you mentioned surfing, and I immediately swatted that away as something that I would never want to do, you know, with humor, of course. Whenever I have friends or people who know I'm from San Diego who are visiting, and I'll get a text or an email saying, hey, I'm going to San Diego. What should I do? Where should I eat? What should I see? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, it's, I realize having moved that I've pretty much taken it for granted. And it's probably a common thing with where people are from and where they've spent all their time. But seriously, I, when people ask me that, I'm like, I know there's a zoo. Um, <laughs> I know there are beaches. I can't tell you the last time I was at one, so I couldn't recommend which one to go to restaurants. I don't know. Um, a couple Mexican food places that are my staples that I always have to go to when I'm in town. We got to shout them out. Yeah, shout them out. Now. <laughs> I mean, Lolita's is a favorite of mine that has really expanded over the years and they have multiple locations. Carnesada fries from there. So good. Uh, burrito, it's all, it's all good stuff. Um, See, that is a San Diego. You ha even though you say you don't surf and do that stuff, Lolita's only locals can mention. So there you yeah. go, and that that is one of my favorites. So that's a that's a staple for me, and probably the most San Diegan part about me. But I'm just I always struggle to recommend things to do or places to go, because I've always just been doing my own thing, I guess. Well, you can tell them to talk to us and there check out the San Diego Union Tribune. I will refer all. San Diego tourist requests to you guys. <laughs> hey, well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been uh, really fun. My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
Thanks again for listening to Name Drop San Diego. If you like what you heard, please subscribe on your favorite app and check out some of our older episodes with guests like Tony Gwynn Jr. and NFL reporter Jim Trotter. Yeah, and you can find us on social media. Just search Name Drop San Diego on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. See you next time.